Well, good morning, Cedar Creek. Thank you so much. If you have no idea who I am, uh, my name is Rick, and I'm the adult ministry director here at our Banks Mill campus, where I'm coming to you live. And excited to be here this morning as we continue in week four of our Roman series. Uh, and let me tell you, I have been fired up for quite some time about this message because as we were planning and getting ready for this series, we were kind of passing out who was going to get what, who was going to get what chapters. And the book of Romans is really going to shift this morning, and we're going to get into a huge transition that if I can be completely honest and just kind of open and transparent with you from the get-go, is a wrestle that I had until fairly recently in my faith. And so for the past couple of weeks, and I would encourage you to back up and look at those messages, because we, what we have done for the past two weeks specifically is gaze back at the Mount Everest that is the central tenet of the Christian faith called the gospel. The good news that Jesus is going to leave heaven to be born in a manger, to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, and through that we are able to receive things like justification, adoption, atonement for our sins, and a righteousness that is of God and restores our relationship with God. And so I have been unbelievably excited because this morning we're going to kind of begin to shift from gazing back at that mountain that is the gospel, and begin to wrestle with the, okay, but what does that mean for me now? Okay, so what does the gospel do in my life now? Because in addition to hearing what the gospel is for the last two weeks, we heard Philip and then we heard Jordan last week at all of our campuses declare that the gospel is never something you graduate from. That it's something that we preach to ourselves time and time and time again for every day that we're on this side of heaven. And so today what we're going to try to do, and we'll get there in just a little bit, is answer the question why that is so imperative. But I want to encourage you, if you didn't get those two weeks, to go back and watch that because it's going to help you as we wrestle back. And again, we're at a transitional spot, so this is a great week for you to catch up with everything that's been going on in the book of Romans if you haven't been with us. There's two types of people in the world. People that can turn their mind off and people who cannot. Okay? I'll break it down a different way. There's two types of people in the world. People who decide to go to sleep and they go back to their room and they lay down and they simply go to sleep. And then there's people who decide to go to sleep and it starts about a four hour long process of trying to unpack what's going on in your brain and what's happened in that day and then you get the gift of sleep. I fall into the latter. Now, I need you to understand, I've shared this before. My mind is the scariest place in the entire world for myself, and it's my own mind. And it never stops. A couple of weeks ago, uh, it was our daughter. She's now four. It was her birthday. Uh, June the 15th was her birthday. And so we asked her, we said, Piper, what do you want to do for your birthday? And she said, I want to go to Build-A-Bear, and I want to go to the Pepper. That's what she calls chilies because chilies here in Aiken for a long time had a giant pepper out front of it. And so that's what she calls chilies. And so we said, okay. So I took off early from work. We went home. We, we got ready. We headed over to the Augusta Mall and we went to build a bear. And Piper has your typical three, four-year-old attention span. And so she was satisfied with that for a minute. And then she started with what Piper's favorite thing is at the mall. And that's the escalator. 
And she said, Dad, I want to do the escalator. I want to go up and I want to go down. And it's her birthday, right? So I'm like, you know what, babe? We're going to do it. We will ride the escalator until you get tired. Now, my wife, is she has to take the little one. She's like, hey, I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble to try to get him to get some rest and maybe feed him. So we're going to go sit. I'm like, it's fine. I'll take her to the escalator. And so we make our way over towards the escalator. And the up escalator is fine. And then I recognize that the down escalator is roped off. Now, this is a sidebar, and it's free, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the story. But I do not understand how an escalator ever goes out of service and why you have to shut it down when it does. Whenever it goes out of service, an escalator is just stairs, right? I have to walk up and down that. Now, you don't have to rope this off. We can just walk up and down the stairs. But the down escalator is broken. Now, if you've ever been to the Augusta Mall, there's only two escalators. One is on the end all the way at Dick's, and the other is on the complete other end of the mall. But it's baby girl's birthday, and she wants to ride the escalator. And then she convinces herself that she only wants to go up this one. And so I say, okay. And so the first time we go up, and then we walk all the way across the mall, I'm thinking to myself, why is the escalator out of order? It's just stairs. And then we walk all the way back across the bottom of the Augusta Mall to go back up because, again, this is the escalator that she has to go up. And we're riding it up. And then I begin to think about this cycle that we're in. I'm like, this is meaningless. And again, I can't turn my mind off. And about the 15th time that we're doing this, I'm starting to get philosophical with it. Right? Like I'm starting to break it down and I'm starting to think through this passage in Romans that's freshly kind of in my mind where I'm going to be teaching through. And then I begin to think through my past and my faith and my story and my ministry career. So before I was in the position that I'm in right now, I did just under 10 years at two incredible churches as a student pastor. And I worked with middle school and high school students and it was incredible and I miss so much of it. But one of the things that was constantly infuriating for me and I struggled with in my years of student ministry was this cycle that I found middle school and high school students to be in when it came to their faith journey. And here's how it played out. We would do a winter retreat or a fall retreat or a summer retreat or an outreach trip or something like that and we would come back and these kids would be on fire. Right, And then we would show up in the next small group. Every kid is sharing, and it's deep, and it's meaningful. And I'm going to tell you, doing that with middle school and high school students is one of the most addictive things you can ever do. Because when stuff starts to click in their mind, it's unbelievable to watch. And so that goes on, depending on the kid and how type A or type B it is. It may last for a couple of weeks. It may last for a couple of months. But then it begins to feel like they kind of begin to drift away. And the answers become less, less readily accessible for them. They begin to share less. They begin to kind of go back into their, I call it their disgruntled teenager stage, right? Like, I don't need anybody's help. I don't need anybody really to speak to me or look at me or talk to me or tell me anything. And they, monitor, they migrate themselves back in that direction. And then the next retreat comes up. And then we start the cycle over and over and over again. And for the entire 10 years that I was in ministry, there was kids that honestly I saw come out of that cycle and take tremendous steps in their faith and walking with Jesus and praise God for that because it wasn't any strategy or thing that we did. It was just God's grace shown to them through the gospel that they began to apply in their life. But I, for all of my years in student ministry, never figured out how do I get kids off of this escalator ride? 
How do I get kids away from their faith being a series of highs and lows, highs and lows, highs and lows? Or what's even worse, a series of highs and then a series of just kind of blah. That I'm just kind of coasting, that I'm just kind of riding. And so then the 23rd time that we're walking across the Augusta Mall, all right, this is all that just happened, it's still happening in my mind as we're riding up and down, up and down, up and down. I began to think about my own story. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, but I didn't really come to faith, didn't surrender my life to Jesus until college. And from the very moment that I actually submitted to Jesus, I knew that Jesus was calling me to something, and I'm just the kind of personality type that if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Like, we're going to get after it. And so I started doing it, right? Like, I'm pretty sure if you could go back and ask my roommates and my friends before Jesus that were in my life, after Jesus, if they knew Rick, they probably thought that I got connected with some kind of cult. Like, I came back and I was like reading my Bible. I was studying my Bible. I was hoping that people were going to ask me. I was going to try to share about it. And that's what I became. Now, I became that and I still had some some cynicalism to me, cynicism to me. But I was wrestling with that, and I was getting after it, and I was trying to figure out what this gospel thing meant for my life. But then something happened. And what happened is, in that cycle of getting after it, a couple of months, maybe maybe less than that, I couldn't tell you exactly when it was, into this newfound relationship with Jesus, the old Rick won a battle over the new Rick. And I fell back into the lifestyle and the choices that I had walked in for all of my life before Jesus. And so then I began to run back to this gospel message knowing, hey, this is the thing that saved me. This is the thing that broke me. This is the thing that caused me to fall in love with Jesus. And I ran back to it. And the question that began to play under my walk with Jesus is this, is this enough? And so I began to do it, and I committed myself to go as a student ministry intern on a student ministry trip, and then I decided God's calling me into student ministry. God's calling me into ministry. And under all of these decisions that I'm making, for the first several years of my walk with Jesus, the question that's continually playing on loop, like me continually walking across the Augusta Mall, is this question of, is this enough? And then as I began to wrestle that question down, again, appreciate my mind never turns off. As I began to try to boil that question down to what's actually going on, I began to realize that what I was asking is not, are these actions enough? Are these things that I'm doing enough? Is this Bible study enough? Is talking to these people enough? Is serving in this class enough? Is working with the students enough? The real heart of all of those questions became, am I enough. And so I would run back to this story of what Jesus had done. And I would be grateful for his grace. And I would feel encouraged. And I would watch videos about baptisms and see people taking next steps and walk through that with students as a pastor. And under that, quietly, In the subconscious wrestling of my mind, in my spirit, was the question, am I enough for the gospel? Am I enough for God's love that initiates the gospel? 
And so what I want to do this morning is that Paul is going to ask a very similar question to that one. And this is one of the, one of the passages of Scripture, and the reason that I was excited that this is kind of what I got handed when we went through the book of Romans was this passage of Scripture, because Paul is going to ask a very similar question. That Paul is going to turn around for the first seven chapters of Romans. We've been looking at the gospel. We've been defining the gospel. We've been laying out the gospel. And now he's going to ask the question, so what? What does that mean for me? And then even more, we could boil it down simply, and that is this even for me? Specifically, he's going to ask, is God's love for me? So if you have your Bible or you're on your phone, you can go over there to Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 35 and just unpack a couple of verses. We'll jump around a little bit, but the heart of what we're going to do is right here in Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 35, Paul writes this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, and he's going to quote from Psalms, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul unpacks the gospel, and then he turns around and goes, who can separate us from this? And then he rattles off this list of things that's not good. Right? Like we look at that and we go, okay, why didn't you start with like some happy stuff? Maybe some happy stuff could separate us. Maybe some good things can separate us. But he runs to some dark corners. And as I read through this, I was reminded of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll get there in just a second. But here's what I want us to understand is that Paul is not writing a Sunday school answer to God's love. That Paul is not coming at us and going, okay, Rick, it's easy for you to believe that God's love is for you. Here's what the answer is. God's love is with you if it's good. God's love is with you if it's bad. And I just want you to swallow that. Here's the lesson. Take it and receive it. That this isn't just a Sunday school lesson that Paul has somehow written because he's literally writing the Bible. Look at Paul's testimony. I want you to consider the angle of the argument and the person presenting the argument to us this morning about God's love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives us a little bit of his testimony, and it's awesome. Starting in verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Who wants to sign up and follow Jesus and be like Paul? Nobody, okay, all right. Right, So here's Paul's testimony. My life has existed. Paul's like, I just want my train to get back on the tracks for a second. My entire train ride has been off the tracks. And so Paul is not writing this lesson to us about God's love from some ethereal theological position. It's not some abstract thought that he's pulled from the heavens about God's love. This is personal. And that's the first point that I want us to understand this morning about God's love is that it is personal. God's love for you is personal. But I want to be careful because we just read this passage from Romans and if you're going, or from Corinthians, and if you're going, whoa, 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 Rick, 
If that's what God's love looks like, and that's Paul's argument for God's love is that I'm going to be shipwrecked, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be stoned, and then I'm going to do it again, and then when that's gone, I'm going to do it again, and then eventually I'm going to be arrested in Rome and killed for it. Uh, thanks, but I'm all full up on difficult times. Is that what Paul is not teaching us is that the suffering is what is God's love. But what Paul is teaching us is that in the midst of suffering is most often the best place for us to find God's love's present. That Paul is not saying, I have earned God's love because I've been through X, Y, and Z. He says, I've been through X, Y, and Z, and in each of those circumstances, in each of those scenarios, I found God's love to be present. I found God's love to be with me. But this isn't a story that is unique to Paul. If you flip back a little bit older before Paul's time and you go to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5 you're going to see the apostles are going to go before the Sanhedrin and they're going to have this whole message prepared where they're going to tell the Sanhedrin, hey, you guys are the one who killed Jesus and you should say you're sorry for it. And then the Sanhedrin is not going to do that. They're going to beat the disciples. And the interesting thing about the conclusion of Acts chapter 5 is after the disciples are beaten, Acts chapter 5 concludes saying that they were left rejoicing to have been worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now you don't leave rejoicing because you're like, man, I just, it was just, God was just so apparently in love with me in that moment. I'm so glad that God could let me be beaten. That's not it at all. What they realized is that they had a God who even in the most unimaginable suffering could empathize with them as they walked through it. And a God whose love was personal and present with them. But it's not even just a scriptural thing. John Calvin, a 17th century theologian, says this, that it is no new thing for the Lord to permit his saints to be undeservedly exposed to the cruelty of the ungodly. In fact, right now, if you were to go and look at where the Christian church is exploding, do you know where it is? That right now God is doing an unbelievably profound work in the harshest places in the world to be a Christian. And that's not new. Do you know where the church is shrinking? In the United States of America where it is unbelievably easy to be a follower of Jesus. You see what suffering does, and suffering is often a gift, is that suffering causes us to wrestle with what we trust. And we're going to talk more about that later, but suffering refines what we trust. And what we trust, if placed in the right place, is going to lead us to freedom. There's a personal love of God that redeems us, is ahead of you, behind you, in every scenario you will encounter, which is great news because you will experience both suffering and prosperity. And both of those seasons, Christ's love is for you personally. But then Paul's going to continue if you flip back over to Romans chapter 8 in the passage we're unpacking this morning in verse 37. He says, no, and I don't know why the ESV translates no, the Greek that this is written in, the better translation here is, and I don't know a whole lot of Greek, I know just enough to be dangerous, the better translation would probably be the word but. So it says no or but, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Now this echoes back to that famous passage from Philippians that Paul's going to write to the church at Philippi, that I can do all things through Christ. The second lesson about God's love that Paul is going to unpack for us is that God's love is powerful. Now this is unbelievably important because when we talk about love for many of us, especially the younger people in this room, your minds go to some sort of lavishing of affection that looks like a Nicholas Sparks movie. Right, that we go to the notebook, that we migrate towards these places, and that this is our picture of love. And God absolutely is going to lavish affection on you. But that is not all that God's love is. God's love is affection, but God's love is empowerment for the inner man or woman. It is the empowerment that we need to battle back against sin that so easily entangles and enslaves us. And God's love is an invitation to to, to reckon with this. The gospel frees you. And look at me right here in the face because I don't want to miss this. God's love in the gospel frees you from having to pursue perfection. You don't have to be perfect. And that's good news, and this may sting a little bit, and I'm sorry. The reason that it's good news is because no one in here is or will ever be this side of heaven. But the incredible news of God's love is that it not only is a lavishing of affection, but in that lavishing of affection, we find the gracious encouragement to continue to battle against our sin. And then, when just like in my faith story, the old you wins against the new you, and that sin struggle comes back, the solution to that is not to run away from God. The solution tonight is not to even begin to play that question under your life of am I enough? Can I be enough? Is this enough? Will I be enough? The solution to that is to run back to the God who loves and graciously saved you to find that love and grace to be the fuel that you need to take the next step in the battle to fight for your obedience. God's God's love is not meant to be judgment. And the gospel is not meant to somehow weigh you down with guilt. You're already justified. And the message of the gospel is that you didn't justify. Jesus did. So the interesting and incredible thing about the message of the gospel is the answer to the question that we started all this with, am I enough, is no. And that's unbelievable news because we can't be enough. But the hope of the gospel is you don't have to be. Christ has been. Christ loves, restores, reconciles, redeems all that would come in there. And so the reason that I want to be very careful that we don't simply turn God's love into a lavishing of affection is because if we do it that way, we have this tendency to drift towards this worldly image of love this Nicholas Sparks romantic image of love where there's somehow something that I have to do. That I have to earn this or it will be taken away. That if I'm not a good partner in this gospel relationship with Jesus, that Jesus is somehow ready to just go, listen, I tried. God, I tried to save Rick, but something's wrong with him. He's not getting it. Incredible news of the power of God's love is that it sustains even in our sin. And that when we fall short 
in our sin, even after our first embrace with Jesus, our response is not to run away, but to run to. And the churches so often miss this because we sell the opposite. Become this, behave this, do this, dress this, act like this, don't do this, don't say this, don't be this. When the message of the gospel is simple, Jesus. Yeah, but I struggle with this. What am I supposed to do? Jesus. But I wrestle with this. I'm uncertain about this. Am I ever going to be good enough? Rick, you don't know what I struggle with. You don't know what I wrestle with. I don't have to. Because here's what I know. Your sin, and I don't care what it is, your sin will never be bigger than Jesus' grace. And you will never out God's love. I don't care what a Christian has told you in your past. They got it wrong. None of us is worthy, but Christ's love has reconciled us. And it's his love that sustains. But then Paul's still not done with his argument as he goes powerful. If we jump back into verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul rattles off this long list. It's basically like, here's everything else that I can think of in the world, and it won't separate you, which arrives us at the last point that I want you to jot down if you're taking notes with us, that God's love is unchanging. It's unchanging, and here's the reason I can say that, that we can look at a couple of these pairings that Paul throws up. The first is death nor life. Now, Paul is not talking about martyrdom here, okay? Although there's certainly other places in Scripture that Paul and other biblical authors authors are going to refer to things like martyrdom. That's not what Paul is talking about here as he talks about death nor life. He's more speaking about the flows of life, just the ebbs and flows, the day in, the day out, the normalcy of life. There's nothing in your life, present or future, he's going to get to in just a second, that can separate you from the love of God. And this is unbelievable comfort because I live my entire life with this slogan. There is no one in this room that is immune to having your entire life changed right now because your cell phone rings. But Paul is going to go, even when that cell phone ring comes, even when that phone call comes, and even when your life jumps off the tracks, there is nothing in the normal or outside of the normal that is going to separate you from Christ's love. It is there. And then he's going to take it even farther because that's the normalcy of life is the visible things. Then he's going to say angels and rulers. There is nothing in the invisible world. There is nothing in angelic world and there's nothing in the demonic world that can pull you from God's love. Now, I want to be careful with this because the demonic does have power, but here's the demonic. The demonic's power is simply to lie. And the only way that the demonic has power in the life of a believer is if you come into agreement with the lie. Is that if that question that gets pressed into you, am I enough, begins to be the tool that you use to never step into what God calls you to, you've bought into the lie because of some past hang up or some struggle in your life that you're never going to be enough instead of reckoning with the fact that you're not enough and Jesus has made you enough. And so there's nothing in the visible or the invisible world. But I want to be careful about this because here's what we know about Satan from Genesis chapter 3, from the beginning of the gospel narrative. 
that he's cunning, that he's crafty, and that they know how to lie. Which is the reason that at Cedar Creek you are going to get pushed consistently towards two things. The first is we want you to study God's word. One of the greatest things that happens is when somebody comes up to me after a message that I teach, and this is unbelievably encouraging to me, and questions something that I said. Because I don't want you to eat as though I'm just feeding you from a plate. And Philip would say the exact same thing. Our lesson in standing up here and teaching is not that you would just accept what we say is Scripture. It's not Scripture. I'm just unpacking it. I want you to know God's Word so that you don't come into agreement with those lies. But here's the thing. You can't even do that. You can't even do theology well by yourself. So the second thing, other than God's Word, that we're going to steer you towards is community. Here we call them home groups. We are going to steer you towards being around other believers who can see your life from a different perspective than you can, who can speak into your life and go, hey, I see you wrestling with this, and here's the truth that I know about Scripture, and here's the truth that I know about you, even though you might have a difficult time believing this. Here is what I know to be true. And it's incredible what happens if we pick up a shield and a sword in this fight. You become very difficult to beat and you become somebody that the enemy has to pay attention to. Because not only are you wrestling with your relationship with Jesus and his love, but now you're bringing other people into that relationship and showing them that. And you have protection against doing it in the incorrect way. So we're going to steer you towards God's word and community that you might not fall for angels and rulers and those things will not separate you from the love of Christ. And then there's another one that I want to unpack in that list that he said present, that things present are things to come. There's two things that I found in the present have a tendency to lead us to believe that we're not worthy of God's love. The first of them is really two things, but in one, I would lump them together. It's compulsion and temptation is that just like we started this message talking about, there's all these moments where this thought or this desire or this impulse or this thing wells up inside of you that you go, ooh, I shouldn't feel that way. Or even you're tempted and you know that you're being tempted and you're like, well, if I was just a better believer, if I was a stronger Christ follower, I wouldn't be tempted by these things. I wouldn't have these impulses in my life. I wouldn't be drawn toward these things. And then the response that you have is not to run back to the, to the love of Christ that helps you battle against those impulses and temptations. It's to walk in shame. And so the things that pull us down in the present might be compulsion and temptation that have caused you to believe that you're still not worthy, that there's nothing that you can do, that you should just be shameful and sit in the back row and do the Sunday morning attendance thing and check it off, but the actual work of Christianity is not for you. I'm not worthy. And then the other thing, interestingly, is where we opened up that's in the present that may convince us that we're separated from the love of God is suffering. And I think this is partially because the American church has not done a very good job embracing this topic. I don't know why. Suffering's, I guess, just not sexy enough. It's not fun to talk about. But it's unbelievably necessary. And in not talking about it, what many of us have become convinced of is that somehow our suffering is the result of some kind of cosmic karma. That I'm walking through this difficulty because of something I did and because God is angry with me and because God doesn't love me and because he needs me to repent of some sin I didn't even know I struggled with. And until I can figure out what it is, I'm going to be stuck in this and bad things are going to continue to happen. It's going to continue to rain on my parade and we have to live the rest of our life like Eeyore. 
But Paul's going to say, no, 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 no. I suffered. And even in that, I found that the love of Christ often was most near to me in the darkest moments. Because Christ himself would be exposed to those darkest moments so that he could walk with us in those darkest moments. So there is nothing present, past, visible, invisible, future, any of that, that is going to separate us from the love of God. But I love that he includes future because the last thing I want us to understand about God's love is that it's hard to believe. Right? So here's the summary bow on what everything we talked about so far is. I know that what we just talked about might have sounded good and it might be easy to say out loud to yourself, hey, God loves me no matter what. He's for me. Who can be against me? Let's go. We're going to fight and that's unbelievable. But here's the bow that I want to tie up the messages and this is a weird one. That's an unbelievably easy claim to make and an unbelievably difficult truth to live. It's easy to say, to outwardly recognize, hey, Christ loves us, amen, brother, let's celebrate, let's walk in that. But then when your train comes off the tracks, it becomes unbelievably difficult in the middle of suffering or prosperity to go, hey, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That in both of these, he has seen it. And here's the thing, I told you that my mind doesn't shut off and that's my curse, but what my curse is not is that my curse is not anxiety. I'm not an anxious person about the future. I just kind of go with the flow. I've been through enough in my life to realize that I don't control anything. And so I'm just kind of like, God, hey, I'm trying to follow along with you. Just please just keep it PG. That's all I'm asking, God, nothing else. I've, I've had my share of, of bumps and bruises. I just wanna, can we just walk this out together? But I recognize for many of us in the world today, when we talk about the fact that Paul says things to come, when we look towards the future, the predominant emotion that we feel is anxiety. And the reason that I know that is because look at where we are. Go home and turn on your social media. Go home and look at the news, and here's what you're going to see. People are panicking over gas prices. People are panicking over politics. People are panicking over guns. People are panicking over the Supreme Court. People are panicking over viruses. People are panicking over 401Ks. People panic over property values. People are panicking over inflation. That as we look to the future, our response is anxiety and Christ's unbelievable encouragement to us this morning is that regardless of any of that, your response doesn't have to be panic. It can be trust to, to, or it can be freedom to trust that I am walking with you in all of that. Regardless of what happens with the 401k, regardless of what happens with gas prices, regardless of what happens with anything else, I am with you. My love is with you and it will not separate from you. You can trust me because your ultimate hope isn't in Exxon. Your ultimate hope isn't in your bank account. And the more that we place our hope in those things, the more our lives are going to be dominated by anxiety. But again, the bow that we're tying all this up on is that it's easy for me to stand on the stage and see this, and it may even be easy for you to say it over your life. But then Fox News is going to say this, and CNN is going to say this, and the world is going to bombard you, coupled with the fact that we're performance-driven, we're depraved, we're wounded, and we're bent towards anxiety. And then the world bombards us with all of this, and the response is forced over and over and over again. What are you going to trust? What are you 
going to cling to. And Paul is going to go in looking back at the gospel and the love of God that initiates the gospel. The only acceptable response is that I will build my entire life around that love that I could not deserve, that I will never deserve, but will always be there for me. Look at what Paul writes in the difficulty of understanding this in his letter to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 3, 17 and 19. As we close this morning, he says this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in what? In love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the strengths what is breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, and this is where I love it, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So what he says is to know the love of Christ that's beyond what you can fully comprehend that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the challenge that Paul issues after spending weeks gazing up the Mount Everest of the gospel is now to begin to build your entire life, looking back there and then allowing that to inform the steps going forward. And what it provides for you is freedom. Here's the unbelievable freedom found in Christ as a result of the gospel message, is it's not a freedom to sin, it's a freedom to be obedient. Here's the freedom that you have. You don't have to be a perfect Christian. Christ loves you. You don't have to be a perfect whatever you do for a living. Christ loves you. We can make it even a little bit more personal. You don't have to be a perfect dad. Christ loves you. You don't have to be a perfect mom. Christ loves you and gives you the freedom to trust in his love and in his saving work of the gospel as you do your job, as you parent, as you do whatever it is that he would call you to do so that you can experience freedom. And when you feel like you hit a home run, you can celebrate Christ's love being sufficient then. And when you feel like you struck out and it was all that you could do to not accidentally kill your toddler... You can celebrate God's love then because it was sufficient when you felt sufficient and when you felt completely insufficient. The gospel was enough because God's love is enough and God's love is there inseparable from you to remind you to look back up the mountain and to build your life upon the grace that you found at the top of it. Will you pray with me? Jesus, this morning, God, thank you God, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for the peace that we have in you. Thank you for the joy that we have in you. God, but my prayer this morning is that this won't simply be some theological lesson in what we do and don't have as a result of what you have done for us. God, my prayer is that you will give us a peace that passes understanding, that you will give us your presence, your power, to see what exactly it is the gospel has done for us. That we will know that we can walk in freedom, that when we don't have all the answers, you are sufficient. And when we feel like we do have all of the answers, you are sufficient. God, and that ultimately the joy isn't found in the answers, the joy is found in your sufficiency. So God, my prayer for those of us in this room who have responded to the gospel, who have found your grace at the top of that, God, that you would give us the boldness and the courage to live in that grace, to demonstrate that grace to the world around us. 
God, that we wouldn't feel the need to respond to every social media post or correct everything that everyone gets wrong. But that we will see social media posts and news and desperation and hurting and brokenness as an opportunity to paint a picture of the grace that we've already received. That we would point a but we would paint a picture first of Jesus and allow him to do the business of battling with sin, of correcting hearts and of drawing into joy. Come, my prayer for those of us in this room and one of our other campuses are joining us online that don't know that hope, that don't know that joy, that don't know that love. God who tents up even at the notion of the word love because the love that we were promised of this earth didn't work out the way that we thought it would, that it ended in divorce, it ended in abuse, it ended in someone walking away. And so even that word makes us uncomfortable. God, may you remove all of those hurts, all of those wounds, just to give us a glimpse of what your agape, your true godly love is for us. May we surrender our lives. May we see the gospel message, the good news that you have saved us and redeemed us and restored us if we will be faithful to put our faith in you, to trust you. So we love you. We worship you. We thank you for everything that you're doing in this place this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.